Are you ready for some football? Yeah, I am. It's good. Any, any uh, 49er fans in the house? No. Excuse me? Yeah. Raider what? So, yeah. So, um, would you mind if I tell you who's going to win the Super Bowl? That'd be all right? It would help. Yeah, Falcons. Yeah. Sorry, Tracy. <laughs> Feel bad for you from right here, man. Yeah. So, um, I can't tell you who's going to, who, if they're going to cover the spread or not. Okay, so whatever. So you, nobody's got money riding on the game. Good for you. Good job. So anyway, I don't know about that. I can tell you that Coach Harbaugh is going to win the game. So how's that? I'm pretty good, right? Of course, I can tell you that Coach Harbaugh is going to lose the game also, since there's brothers coaching against each other. You know, John Har- Harbaugh against Jim Harbaugh. That's pretty cool, right? So Harbaugh's going to win, and Harbaugh's going to lose. So I'm doing pretty good. That's two predictions. They're both going to come true. You heard it here first. Well, actually, probably not here first, but you heard it here. Anyway, how about if I just tell you who's going to win the game? Here's the deal. Write this down. The team that that will win next Sunday afternoon in the Super Bowl will be the team that best executes their playbook. Ah, that's pretty... How about that? I'm a prophet. Okay. Not so much, huh? Here, here's, here's the thing. Some of you don't really, anybody just doesn't really care about football at all? All right. About 20 of you. So let me explain it. Let me explain it for you, okay? So in football, there's this thing called a playbook. So when, at the beginning of the season, when the team gets together in, for spring practices, maybe in May, and when they come back for the summer practices in July, the coach gives every member, every player on the team, a playbook. A playbook is a notebook or maybe a computer document or something where they lay out every play that they're going to run during the course of the year. And they may add to it later on, but it's, it's like this is their strategy book for their team. And the coach will say to their players, you learn this, you practice this, you execute this, and we will win. But if you fail to learn it, and if you fail to practice it, and if you fail to execute it, we will not win. Simple as that. And every team goes through this. Every, every team in the NFL goes through this process where they have a playbook. Well, what's interesting is a playbook is just a set of strategies for a, a team or an organization or a church. And every church has something like a playbook. They may not call it that, but every church has something like a playbook where they say, here's our strategy. Here's how we believe we will win. For the last several months, our ministry staff and I have just walked together through the things that we say are true of us. What do we believe? How do we live? How do we ex- why do we exist? Things like that for the church. And we just kind of evaluated our playbook and said, do we know where we're going? Do we know who we are? Does the church know, you know where we're going and who we are and those kinds of things? And it's a playbook. And then what we found out as we walked this through together, we find out that, yes, our church has a playbook, and we've been sharpening it in the last several months. And we realize that the playbook is not just for the church, but a playbook is for every individual Christ follower in the church. You can't sit out there and come into church every week and sit here for an hour, an hour and a half, or whatever we do, and, and, and go, nice job on the play, Pastor Brad. That was good. This is not the play. This is the locker room. 
And I'm coaching you on how do we put the playbook into action. So for the next several weeks, I want to talk about Lakeside's playbook. And because the church and us as individual followers of Christ have pretty much the same playbook, I want to talk about our playbook together. I want to talk about life's playbook. Because I believe this, if we as a church will learn it and practice it and execute it, we will win. By God's definition of winning, which is different than the world's, I realize that. But we will win if we learn it, practice it, execute it. That's where we're heading. So today what I want to do, the the playbook for us, as we understand it, is a series of questions. And I want to just take the first question today, and then we'll just walk through this as we go along. I'm going to give you a copy of the playbook. It looks like this. Ours is not a, it's not thick. What's one page? Little page. I'm going to give you this on the way out today. And uh, I don't want you to have it yet because you'll read it while I'm talking to you. (laughs) Won't you? Yeah, you will. See, I know it. So you'll get it on the way out. Next week, you can bring it back and you can read it while I'm talking to you, okay? But for today, I just want you to um, follow along in Scripture and let's just figure out how this works. Let me ask you a question before we get into Scripture. Um, Just just a little um, research project on my part. How many of you, when we get into church these days or maybe in your own devotional life at home, how many of you, when it's time to read the Bible, you pull out your iPhone or your smartphone or your tablet? How many of you do that? All right. I'm trying to figure out if I'm a dinosaur yet for using a paper thing. No? Oh, some of you still use paper? All right. Well, if, for those of you who use paper and you don't get the whole smartphone thing, people that are sitting here like this while I'm talking, they're not texting. They're not being rude. They're taking notes. Or they're tweeting the message out to the, all their friends. That's true. That's how, okay. Whatever. Just trying to do a little research. All right, so let's get in the Bible. Here's question number one in the playbook. Why do we exist? Why do we exist? And I'm talking about why do we as a church exist? Why do we as individuals exist? Why do we, uh, you know, exist in this world? Why do we exist? And some of you will say, well, I know the answer. It's because God created us. Like, okay. Case closed. Let's close in prayer, right? Okay, God created us. I, I believe that's true. And there's, you know, a bunch of theories about how he created us and all those things. I don't really, that doesn't matter to me right this minute. I believe God created us. And so if you go, why do we exist? Well, because God created us. I'm like, amen, right on. Some of you say, well, we exist because the 49ers need fans. <laughs> well, maybe that's so. But I don't want to talk about the cause for our existence today. I want to talk about the purpose for our existence. Why? Why does God have us here? Why did he create us? Why did he put us in this thing called church together? Why do we exist? One of the answers to that question is found in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And I want to read this for you. You can follow along on your smartphone or your tablet or that paper Bible that you brought or that we have on the chairs. We're not going to put iPads there for you to grab. So paper ones for now, okay? Romans chapter 12, starting at verse 1, here's what the Apostle Paul says. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Let me give you a little bit of background to that first. In the, in the 
chapters that come before this in the book of Romans, Paul's talking to us about why we are separated from God. And he says, every one of us have sinned. We've all gone our own way. Each of us has turned to his own way. And we've wandered away from God and become separated from him because of sin. And there's been this big rebellion, and we've all been engaged in it. We've all said no to God at some point along the way. And so then he says in Romans chapter 11, right before this passage, he says, and so God had to pour out his mercy on us. Or I should say, God decided to pour out his mercy on us. Uh-oh. To pour out his mercy on us. Because if God did not give us mercy, we would not exist and I don't know if it's the wisdom that comes with age or if it's, or, you know, if it's just straight up wisdom. I don't know. But there's, the, long, the older I am, the more I walk in this life, the more grateful I am for God's mercy. Because I need it. Desperately, totally need it. And we all do. And so Paul says, let me set this up for you. God has poured out his mercy on those of you who were disobedient to God. Those of you who are following your own playbook. Those of you who are doing your own thing. God has poured out his mercy on you. And then he says, therefore, beginning of chapter 12. Therefore, because of God pouring out his mercy on you. Therefore, I want you to live your life. To offer your life as a living sacrifice to God. Offer your life, as a, offer your body as a living sacrifice to God. Of course, sacrifices were always offered as dead things. I mean, you, when you sacrifice something, you kill the animal and you put it up on the altar. All those, all those sacrifices that were offered to God in the Old Testament time in Israel, those were all dead sacrifices. He says to us, I want you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, totally different than what we've done before. And you find out that sacrifice is the essence of the playbook. I mean, our relationship with God begins with sacrifice. If it weren't for the sacrifice of Jesus, we would have no connection with God. None. You can't come to God except through a sacrifice. And God said, I love you so much, I'm going to offer my son for you so he can take your place as a sacrifice so that we can have a relationship. Sacrifice is the essence of our life with God. It's the foundation of our life with God. Sacrifice, Paul says, is the essence of worship. He says, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice to God because that's the essence of worship. It's your spiritual function of worship. Worship is not about singing. It's not. Yeah, should I say that again? Louder. Worship is not about singing. I love to sing. I sing here at church. There's something about singing songs of praise to God that, that lock what I believe about God into my heart and then express it. I sing in the shower. Sorry, you, that was, might be TMI for you, too much information. Um, I sing in my car sometimes. I just find that, that when I sing songs of praise to my God, it locks in my relationship with him. I love that, but, but singing is not the essence of worship. Lifting your hands is not the essence of worship. Some of you are like, oh, come on. And some of you are like, good. I can't see when they put their hands up anyway. Raising your hands is not the essence of worship. Hearing a sermon, as shocking as this will be to you, is not the essence of worship. Should be. No, just kidding about that part. Just kidding. Hearing a sermon is not the essence of worship. The essence of worship is sacrifice. We, sat, we, we make a sacrifice of praise to God. We worship God for the sacrifice that he made 
through his son, Jesus Christ. And so sacrifice is the essence of worship. And it's the essence of the playbook. It's the essence of what God says. This is what I want you to do in your life. This is what I want you to be in your life. And it's interesting because whenever we come to the word sacrifice, we have a very understandable, but I think inaccurate view of what sacrifice is. We always come to sacrifice with the concept that when I, with the concept that when I sacrifice, when I make a sacrifice, I lose something. Right, I give up something, and so I'm going to give up something I'm going to lose. I'm going to be sort of the loser in this, in this process. But here's what, sac- what happens when we sacrifice. You never sacrifice for something that you don't value. If you didn't value it, you wouldn't give something else up for it. The reason you sacrifice dessert is because you value being thin. And you value that more than dessert. And the reason some of us sacrifice being thin is because we like dessert better. You see how this rolls? Here's, let me just give you a different definition of sacrifice. Sorry, come back with me on the dessert thing. You know, I, I know. Sacrifice is when I give up what I love for what I love even more. Sacr- sacrifice is not about going backward. It's about going forward. That's why it's the, it's the essence of the playbook because the playbook is about going forward with Christ. It's about going forward in a relationship with God. And whenever I sacrifice, I always give up something for something I value or love or appreciate or want even more. You think about that in your life, just in your daily life. You go, yeah, I want to lose weight. Okay, that's a high value for me. I'll give up peppermint ice cream. Be hard, but I could do it if I have that goal. My daughter's saying, you could never do that, Dad. (laughs) You know, well, I know it's hard. (laughs) So think about this in terms of Jesus. Think Think about what it means in terms of what God did for us through Jesus. God sacrificed his son for our sake. Now, I'm not saying that God loves us more than he loves Jesus, but I'm saying the value of redemption was so precious that God was willing to give up his son Jesus to get to that greater value. And Jesus was willing to give up his life, which was precious, to get to that greater value of redeeming us. It cost God a terrible price to redeem us. But he gave that price not to go backwards, not so God go, oh, I lost my son. But to say, I gained all these people that I love. And I redeemed them. That's the essence of the playbook. He says, I want you to learn to offer yourselves as a sacrifice to God. Giving up what you love for something you love even more. Now, what does that look like? He says, I want you to make this sacrifice of your body, of your life. I want it to be a living sacrifice. You're going to live this out. And he says, to live it out, you have to do a couple of things. Number one, do not be conformed to this world. 
It's interesting, it's a passive statement. In the, in the NIV, it's written as an active word, but in the Greek when Paul wrote it, it was written as a passive statement. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not let the world squeeze you into its mold, is how one translation says it. It's literally the word schematic. Some of you understand electronic schematics, you know, where it tells you where all the wires go and how it works, and it's like, I don't get all that stuff. I, like, I get it better like this. When you have Play-Doh, this tells you what level I'm on intellectually. When you have Play-Doh, you know, you take a lump of green Play-Doh or something, you put it in one of those squeezy things, and you pull the handle, and it comes out the other end in a shape. What happened to that Play-Doh? It got conformed by this world. The world is attempting to conform you every single second of your life. You don't take a breath without the world wanting to squeeze you into its mold. And when you go to work, you work for a mom and pop organization or you work for a big corporation, you don't ever go to work without the people at work trying to squeeze you into their mold. You live in a neighborhood, your neighbors are trying to squeeze you into their mold. Every time they buy a brand new car, you look at that and you go, I gotta have one of those too. You've been squeezed into their mold. Our politics try and squeeze us into their mold. Our news stations try and squeeze us into their mold. And we keep letting them. And Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. Instead, be transformed. Different word. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, what happens is the, the, the process of being conformed to this world is a process of being squeezed from the outside in, being shaped from the outside in. Being transformed is about being renewed from the inside out. Being conformed is when you let the world squeeze you and shape you. Being transformed is when you let the Spirit of God sh- renew you from inside and make you like Jesus. That's what he wants for you. He says, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, not to be conformed to this world, but but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind from the inside out. He says, that's the playbook. That's what I have for you. And of course, that's been the mission at Lakeside since the beginning, right? What's the mission? To transform as many people as possible into passionate and productive followers of Jesus transformed, changed from the inside out. That's what I want for you. I want your life to be changed from the inside out so that God gets a hold of your spirit. God gets a hold of your soul. God gets a grip on your body and changes you from the inside out because you love Jesus and you're willing to sacrifice some of the things that you love, the things that you love, for God whom you love even more, for God's mission which you love even more. I want you to be transformed for the sake of passionately following Jesus. From my mind, that means to be faithfully and faith-filled following Jesus. I want you to live your life by faith, passionately following Jesus passionately and productively to bear fruit for him so that you say, my life is being changed and there's fruit in my life. 
that represents who Jesus is in my life. And there's fruit in the lives of other people because my life is being transformed. And that's the other side of the mission. It's not just about me being changed. It's about others being changed through me. And I give up those things that I love so I can gain something that I love even more. It's that other people's lives would be transformed through me and other people's lives would be transformed through us. So that the church of Christ makes a difference in this world. In my life, in your life, and the lives of all those people around you that you work with, that you play with, that you live next to. That's the mission. Now, how does that work itself out? How do we, how do we get there? I want to take these weeks where we're talking about the playbook, life's playbook. I want to take these weeks and I want to let Jesus speak into these things. In the last week of Jesus' life, right before he went to the cross, he had his disciples together. They were in Jerusalem and he kept teaching them about his playbook. He kept saying, here's the things you have to know. Here's the things you have to get because I won't be with you very much longer and you've got to get these things down. Here's your playbook. And so we're going to look, as we go along through this series, we're just going to look at some of the things that come in the events of the last week of Jesus' life and see how they relate to us living this out. Matthew chapter 21 tells a story that comes in the last week of Jesus' life. If you want to look this up, go ahead. It's Matthew chapter 21, verse 28. Here's what Jesus says. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe in him. A man had two sons. I never realized this before, but here's the story of the prodigal son in the book of Matthew. Starts off the exact same way has pretty much the same results, just told from a little bit different perspective. A man had two sons. Sort of reminds me of Jack Harbaugh. (laughs) I can't escape it. I don't know why. I mean, so so here's Jack and Jackie Harbaugh. Jack was a coach in college for years and years, and he had these two sons, John and Jim. Turns out John and Jim become good football coaches and they both land jobs in the NFL. And now one's coaching the Baltimore Ravens and one's coaching the San Francisco 49ers. And everyone's coming to Jack and Jackie Harbaugh and all the media and they go, what's it like to have both your boys coaching in the Super Bowl? Aren't you going to feel sad when the Super Bowl is over and one of them loses? Or are you going to feel really happy because at the end of the game, one of them wins? How are you going to handle this thing? And so all the media is pounding on their door, calling their phone, trying to get them to answer their questions. And so the Harbaugh family said, the parents said, you know what, let's just do a, a conference call. Let's get all the media that want to talk to us. Let's get them on the phone all across the country, and we'll just answer all their questions on one conference call, get it over with. So they did last Thursday. And during the course of the call, one of, you know, pe- people could call in from around the country, these reporters and stuff. So one of the phone calls came in, and the guy on the phone said, Hi, this is John from Baltimore. 
And they go, oh, hi, John from Baltimore. What's your question? And he said, he said, well, the question is, is it true that both of you have, have always liked Jim better? <laughs> and there was a little awkward silence, a little pause on the phone, on this, this national phone call. And, and then um, John and Jim's sister was also there in the room hearing the phone call. And she recognized John's voice. And she told her parents, that's John calling. And then Jack, the dad, said, you know, your mother was about to come through the phone line at you. No, of course, we haven't liked Jim better. We like you both the same. Of course. Good parents. The story of Matthew 21 says, a man had two sons. He came to the first son, probably the older son, and he said, I'd like you to go out and work in the vineyard today. And his son said, no. Okay, you're the dad. Or you're the mom. How are you, how are you feeling on this particular day? How are you feeling right about now? If I came to my child and I said to them, I want you to go work in the vineyard. And they looked at me and they said, no. I'm kind of ticked off. And I know you're like, Pastor Brad, you're a pastor. You're not supposed to be ticked off of your children. I don't care, I am. Well, this first son said no. And then he had a change of heart and he went out and worked in the vineyard. And interestingly, there's, there's a word that's usually used in the New Testament for repentance. It's a word that literally means change of mind. Here's a different word. This word is a much more rare word in the New Testament, but it literally means a change of heart. The son had a change of heart. And he went out and he worked in the vineyard. And then the dad went to the second son, the compliant one. You know, the first son, you know, hard charging, firstborn, got to get it, you know, get it done, all that stuff. Then comes to the second one, kind of the compliant one, get along with everybody. It's all, you know, that, maybe that's how the birth order thing goes. I don't know. And, And he goes, son, I'd like you to go out and work in the vineyard. And he goes, yes, dad, I'd be happy to. And then he did not. Now, how are you as a dad or mom feeling about that? Need I say? Because now you're, now you're torqued off even more. And it's interesting because Jesus only gave us two out of the four possible options. See, the, the other option, the one option is, dad comes to the son and says, I'd like you to go out and work in the vineyard. And the son says, yes, and does it. Isn't that an option? Isn't that the option you all would have taken if you were the son? Mm. Or, of course, there was another option. Dad comes and says, I want you to go out and work in the vineyard. And the son says, no, and does not go. He only gave us two of the four options. Why? I think it's because Jesus was saying, no life is static. No life stands pat. None of us comes to faith in Christ as a child and goes up and it's always up and to the right in a smooth path. None of us live that life. We don't even make that life in one day. Oh, Jesus, I promise all day long I'm going to do what you want. Yeah, by about 6.30 in the morning, you're done with that. I know some of you didn't know there was a 6.30 in the morning, but there is. 
No life is static. Sometimes we say yes to God, and by 2 o'clock in the afternoon, we've said no again. Sometimes we say yes this week. I'm at church. I'm into it, God. I'm, I'm going to live for you forever. By Tuesday, we stopped. We say yes, but we live no. And some people say no, but live yes. When Jesus was telling this story, he was talking to the religious leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the holy, holy ones. They were the ones who always said yes to God. But Jesus said, you say yes to God, but you don't follow through. You say yes, but live no. Jesus said, but the, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the ones that you all look down on, you religious types, you look down on them, they look like they're no-sayers. But they live yes. And which one did the will of the Father? No life is static. You don't get to come to faith in Jesus and just go, oh, that was good. I trusted Jesus when I was six years old. That was good. You don't just get to stand pat. You say yes today and you say yes tomorrow and you say yes the next day and then you live yes on those days. That's the calling. That's the playbook. It takes a sacrifice. It takes transformation from the inside out. It also takes an understanding that anyone is eligible for grace. Anyone is eligible for life change. Anyone. The chief priests and the really religious people, they're eligible for grace and they need it. And the ones who are the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the ones who go, oh, they were the sinners, they're eligible for grace. They are eligible for life change. Sometimes Jesus says, Jesus says sometimes the people that are least likely can be transformed by him. You know, we're on a mission to transform as many people as possible into passionate and productive followers of Jesus. But sometimes we look around and we look at people and go, well, that person will never believe. Well, that person will never change. Well, that may be what the angels said about you. That may be what some other Christians have said about you. And yet, you came to the place, most of you, already where you said yes to Jesus. And now you're saying, now I want to live out yes to Jesus. But sometimes, remarkable people that we never thought would respond with a yes to Jesus. And everyone is eligible for grace. Do you know the name Ray Lewis? Yeah, the football fans know Ray Lewis. Ray Lewis is a linebacker for the Baltimore Ravens. His team's going to play against the 49ers next week. They'll, they'll lose, but they'll, they're playing. <laughs> Ray Lewis is known as a ferocious linebacker. He's a, he's a ferocious football player, very talented, very aggressive, very good at what he does. One of the best in the history of the game at what he does. Thirteen years ago, Ray Lewis was involved in a double homicide. Two people died in the course of an altercation that they had, I think, outside of a nightclub. 
In the course of the prosecution of that case, the prosecutors came to Ray Lewis and they said, in exchange for your testimony against your comrades, we won't charge you. And so he testified against the people that he was with and they went to prison and he did not. Sometime later, Ray Lewis had a conversion experience and he put his faith in Jesus. He said, Jesus, I'm going to give you my life. I'm going to say yes to you. I know I said no before, but I'm going to say yes to you. And there are a lot of people, even this week, as the Super Bowl approaches and he's going to be in it, there's a lot of people today that are saying, Ray Lewis doesn't belong in the Super Bowl. He doesn't belong on a team. He belongs in prison. It's not right. It's not fair. It's not just. I heard that a little bit this week, and then I read a blog that talked about it by a man named John Acuff. His blog is called Stuff Christians Like. And the title of this blog entry is Why I Don't Believe in Grace. The other day, Ray Lewis played his last game in Baltimore's stadium. After 17 wildly successful years, he's retiring. At the end of the game, he took off his jersey to reveal a shirt that said Psalm 91. I smiled at that. But then deep in my heart, I thought, yeah, but that guy was part of a double homicide. Whatever. And there it is. I don't believe in grace. Or I believe in it for me and people who have sinned like me. But there's a whole lot of people I don't think deserve grace. The problem is that when we talk about grace, we often don't use one of the most important words to describe it. We say grace is powerful and free and beautiful and amazing, but we leave out one of the key descriptors of grace. The truth is grace is offensive. Grace offends in its generosity. Grace offends in its availability. Grace offends in its depth. Grace offends in its unwillingness to be controlled or owned or manipulated. Grace is offensive. And when I see people who I, don't, who I think don't deserve it, I'm reminded of ultimately how desperately I still need it. The playbook begins with transformation. And you might have said yes to God and have begun to live no. And the sacrifice of Jesus calls you back to say yes. And you might have been saying no for your whole life. And you just came in tonight because someone dragged you in. And you've been saying no to God your whole life. And maybe today you're saying, Jesus gave up his life for me. Maybe it's time for me to say yes to him. It begins with transformation. Transformation begins with sacrifice. And it leads to life change. And that's how we win. Jesus, I pray for us today for life change. I don't know everybody's heart, Lord, and I know that for most of us, we're, we're not the kind of person, Jesus didn't even talk about us, we're not the kind of person who said yes and lived yes forever after. Most of us are not the kind of person who said no and have lived no forever after. Most of us, 
either have been saying no and want to say yes, or we've been maybe saying yes, but living no sometimes. And there's a transformation that needs to happen in our heart before we can ever offer transformation to someone else. There's a transformation that has to happen in me, in us. And so, Jesus, we offer ourselves to you together today. We offer ourselves as a sacrifice to you so that you might do with us what you wish and transform us by your spirit to be like you so that your team, so that your church, so that your gospel wins. Jesus, thank you for these things. We honor you together for them. Amen.